This episode of History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast, is brought to you by Frame Nation, a brand new sponsor to the program. Very excited to have Frame Nation on board. If you are looking to get anything framed, you know, displayed any kind of way, whether you're looking for traditional, maybe you're looking for something a little funky, uh, very unique, uh, maybe you're looking for museum quality, or maybe you're looking for something affordable. Go on down to Frame Nation, bring what you have down there, or you can just come and describe it. They have excellent staff. They're going to help you find the perfect frame within your budget, within you know the scope of what you want to do. You know, it's not going to overshadow the piece you're trying to display, but accent it. They have stuff that you're not going to find anywhere else in the city, um, you know, anywhere else in the area. Uh, I really love the acrylic frames they have. They're brightly colored. Um, you can get some really, really beautiful surfaces. Um, but go check them out. They're at uh, 11 South 15th Street in Shaco Bottom, right there in the Shaco Design District. Um, you can follow them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Google+, Plus, anywhere you can follow somebody, you can follow them. And uh, you should. I do. So uh, find out more information at framenation.net and Head on down to Frame Nation. This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. This is not the normal History Replays Today theme song. That's because Bob Gorman is the guest on the show. He is the secretary and shop foreman for Slave Pit, Inc., which is better known as the, the metal band Guar. Guar may be an odd choice uh, to, to host on a, the Richmond History Podcast, but the band is absolutely history. And nothing else, they've been around for 28 years. That's something to be said for that. And there's also the fact that it's not just a, a rock band. It's an art collective. Um, it, it, the, the band Guar, the, the, this music is often gets overshadowed, whether rightly or wrongly, by the stage show. Uh, it's much more theater than it is your conventional rock show. Somewhere between like a musical or, you know, crossed with uh, professional wrestling, crossed with uh, a horror movie. Um, the, the story, the narrative of war is constantly changing, but the, the general basic idea is loosely what, you know, what they call the mythos of war is... It's the, you know, some of the baddest, most violent, you know, craziest aliens in the galaxy or the universe that were sent to Earth as punishment. They landed in Antarctica where they get frozen in the ice. And then in the 80s, humans use too much aerosol and pollutants. Uh, so global warming makes the ice melt and water is freed. They now travel the Earth, uh, killing and playing rock music. The stage show is mayhem. Um, you know, blood spurts out as they, you know, fight these characters that they that they play or that, that, that are their they're enemies. Um, you know, pop culture figures end up getting the short end of the stick most of the time. Um, all while the band is, you know, dressed up as aliens. Uh, you can check out uh, pictures at historyreplaystoday.org. Uh, you can see the pictures of the band. Um, of Bob Gorman as a human and as the, the characters he plays. Uh, he is actually more on the, you know, the visual art side of it um, as opposed to the music side, but this album they just put out, uh, the 13th uh, album, which is uh, uh, called Battle Maximus, 
uh, which the song you can hear underneath me talking right now is actually the title track of Battle Maximus, the 13th studio album, which is pretty amazing itself. Bob Gorman actually sings a song on there, or, or at least his character does, Bone Snapper. Um, and, and Gwar, or at least the humans that play Gwar, do live in Richmond. Uh, they have a studio that's, that's, that's pretty well known as the Slave Pit. Um, the, we talked to Gorman about how they got that name. You know, it's in Scott's edition. But Gwar, um, you know, it starts almost haphazardly, it sounds like, uh, in, in what's now the, the, the Richmond Dairy Apartments. You know, over the 28 years, they've you know traveled the world. They're getting ready to go to, to uh, Australia. Um, they'll be playing um, Japan for the first time coming up very shortly. They've gotten two Grammy nominations. That's pretty good. Uh, and you know, a lot of twists and turns, including you know November 3rd, 2011, their their longtime guitar player. Uh, suddenly died while they were on tour, had a heart attack of a, a pre-existing condition. Um, just took everybody completely off, off guard. Um, but Gorman is a, is, is a huge asset. He knows all kinds of stuff of what's uh, going on with the band. He's, um, like I said, he is the secretary. He showed me all the, the archives that he's holding. Um, and he's actually working on a coffee table book and a, a documentary about the band and the history of the band. Um, as we talk, uh, it may help if you know who the the band members are, I'm just going to quickly, as of now, the band members are Beefcake the Mighty, Jizmac uh, Degusha, uh, Pustulus Maximus, Balzac the Jaws of Death, and the lead singer, Odorus Arungus. Odorus Arungus is played by Dave Brocky, um, who is the human that's been in the band the longest. He's the only one that was there in the inception, um, which we get into all that with, with Gorman. It's pretty interesting stuff. Um, but the... Oh, you know what would be really cool is if you happen to have seen over the last 28 years, seen a picture, seen a, seen the band and have a picture of Guar, um, whether it's uh, Balzac or, um, you know, Beefcake the Mighty, you know, have a picture with him. Maybe, maybe he signed it. Take that picture down to Frame Nation. Get them to frame it for you. That'd be fantastic. Um, there's also, uh, um, I will bring up now, there are a couple of uh, questionable topics that... Uh, um, maybe a little harsh, mostly, mostly about violence. Um, so just beware if you are squeamish, they're there. Um, I didn't think it was that severe, but I just want to bring it up. You may not want to listen if you are squeamish. Uh, so if you do think that the, these things are objectionable, let me know. History Replays Today on Facebook, Tumblr, uh, or at historyreplaystoday.org, or on Twitter, at History Replays. Follow me on any of those things. Um, I started out talking to Bob about, um, you know, as after I explained this whole thing, you know, where does he see it? Um, is this art? Is this music? Um, and we actually got to talking, uh, pretty good conversation about Matthew Barney and a, another local um, metal band uh, called Lamb of God. That's, they're, they're known pretty well around the world. So let's hear from Bob Gorman. I see Warren much more in a context of uh, collaborative, artistic, and history sort of effort. I see us more like Matthew Barney mm -hmm. than uh, than Lamb of God. Okay, yeah. You know, and so my context is to show that to other people because everybody else thinks, oh, you know, Richmond Metal, Lamb of God, Musical Waste. I'm like, yes, true, but uh, Matthew Barney is a huge Guar fan. 
and he stopped he stopped filming Creed Master Five to come over and, and shake my hand. Really? And say how much of a gore fan he was. Wow. And that's awesome. When was that? Uh, that was at the Guggenheim. That's amazing. I called Jimmy Gestapo, who's an old friend of mine from Murphy's Law. I was trying to look for flyers. This is 12 years ago. And I lived in New York City for a year. Um, and I said, uh, hey man, do you have those old Gore Murphy's Law uh, flyers we've been talking about for like three months? And he's like, well, I'm at the Guggenheim right now. A filming with this totally crazy artist come down here, you know, and I was like, "It's Matthew Barney. It has to be. No one else in the world would have the Guggenheim and Murphy's Law there." Right. So I go there, and he's like, "Yeah, there's free catering. Come on in here." <laughs> and, and I was like, "This is Matthew Barney, right?" And he goes, "How'd you know?" And I'm like, "Cause there's nobody, no other artist in the world." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's filming right now." And uh, so I was just standing there for like an hour, and I was like, "Man, this is awesome." And then someone was like, "Oh, you know, the guy from Guar's here," and he was like, "What?" And he stopped and came over and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a really big fan of Guar, so, you know, I just wanted to say hey. And I was like, you're the biggest artist in the in the entire world. So part of this whole thing is, right. is sort of people that like Matthew Barney, you know, I might be able to say, hey, you know, there's more of a connection here than you think. Sure. He's, he's taken the same absurdist ideas and presented it to these people, and we've just sort of presented it to maybe the wrong audience right. to make a living you know, he's just thought like, oh, I know this angle, you know, where, where we've just basically said like, hey, you know, if we take these same ideas and you can make money playing in a band. Sure. Um, so a lot of what I've been trying to do is say like, hey, man, you know, this is what we are. We're not what you think we are. Right. You know, and I'm just trying to raise my hand and say like, check this out. You might actually like it because... So what you just mentioned, I'm, I'm well right. aware of. Like, so, and I guess because that's actually pretty interesting as well. Because if you get, uh, um, you know, that like somebody like Matthew Barney, who probably even uses a lot of the same materials. Oh yeah. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, Cremaster stuff. Um, he's come at it from an angle that is like, look at how professional I am, and almost the concept of guar is that like while while you want you want to be professional and have all this stuff but it's almost like look how like haphazard we happen to be yeah. you know like you know to act like, to go on stage and act like look how hard this was it comes defeats the purpose right because yeah. the kids want to show up and think this is some silly yeah. idiots that are yeah. playing a game and yeah. we all release and, and that's the way it goes right yeah. I, I don't know I don't really know how to word that, but like, almost if you seem too proper, then it's, you know, yeah. you're no longer cool. Yes. Right? That cool factor's gone. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it seems like there's this random thing, and, and like, that's the cathartic release or, or the sort of, you know, how we impact people, you know, I'm very happy about what I do for a living because I see that and because I, I understand it. Um, you know, I saw the the Butthole Surfers when I was seventeen, and it changed my life. It was right. the most insane uh, thing I've ever seen. And you know, early Guarshers when I was a fan were the same kind of feeling of this like overwhelming experience. You know, and I, I see we do that, and it, I hope we come off as just nonchalant, but, but we work really hard behind the scenes to make this thing and. You know, we used to, before we had barricades, kids would get so into it, you know, 
that they would come up on stage and try and like hurt the, the, our fake bad guys, right? You know, and it's just like if they could actually properly think through it, they'd say like, "Oh, that guy's in the group." Right. So they wouldn't want to like punch him out or drag him into the crowd and beat the crap out of him. But we had such, you know, such an impact on these people. They could not, in like their mind, that, yeah, the, the suspension of disbelief. Exactly. They were like, "That guy's trying to hurt Guar. I love Guar. I'm gonna fuck him up." Right. And it's like, man, that's powerful stuff. Like that is very powerful because we used to get in fights like before we, we got barricades, like early '90s. It was, it, it, <laughs> it was bad stuff, you know. Um, once we went from just the punk rock art crowd to just sort of a larger audience, there was a, definitely a turning point that I was part of, and it was uncomfortable. It was hard until we got proper security and proper barricades and all that stuff. Because, because yeah, I mean, what is that? I mean, because I, mean, I guess we'll like we go before that. I mean, it was, starts out um, with basically uh, punk kids at in college, right? Um, Brock, and, and are there any other members in? Like that, that stayed on that day. Brock, you know, you know, a lot of the folks are still around Richmond, but I um, mean, he's the only one that's the original. Like uh, from yeah, that... I would say. Well, it's it's there's several guars, right? And and what I try I'm trying to do in this these projects is sort of show. It's almost like Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's eras of this thing that it's the same thing, but there's almost a different cast. Right, different theater. It's yeah, like theater troupe. Yes, it's it's the same ideas and the same. Uh, at our heart, we're an art collective that uh, we're communal. Mm-hmm. We share ideas. We all give into the pool and we all take back collectively. Uh, I've come up with ideas for songs. Guys that play guitar have come up with ideas for costumes that I've mm-hmm. built. So it's this communal pool that we all um, are part of, and the foundation of that was at the Richmond Dairy, which was a art collective. Um, and the, the the early Richmond Guard, Dave's the only person left of that. Okay. But the touring professional Guard, there's still like five of us. Okay. Because when the old Guard basically disintegrated, um, and, and Dave was like, I'm going to keep this going, and do something with this and try to make a living off of it, some of those people, Don Draculich, Chuck Farga, Hunter Jackson, they all stayed because they were part of the thing. Now, uh, you know, Don is actually still with us. Right. So Don's one of the original. He just doesn't tour with us. But okay. he's making the movie with me. Um, he comes in and sculpts. He's our basically our main caricature sculptor. Okay. Uh, so he, you know, everybody from... The modern Guar, which is like 1980, mid-1987 on, is, you know, we formed Slave Pit Incorporated in 1990, and we all are shareholders. So, some of the original guys are shareholders, mm-hmm. and they still own part of the company. Mm-hmm. They're just not active shareholders. They just get a right. royalty check every year. Sure. Uh, so, we're, I'm very proud of that fact, of that we we have put our money where our mouth is. Like yeah, we, we we pay the people that started the company, even though they're no longer involved with us. And yeah. a lot of places, like Jimmy Dean Sausage, you know, he has nothing to do. He doesn't. He doesn't even get right. a check, you know. And he's Jimmy Dean. It's a legit. <laughs> yeah, it's a legit uh, corporation, though. It, it, it's you know, it's not. It's no longer just kids playing around with right. with uh, masks and stuff. Yeah. Um, where would the the dairy, the Richmond Dairy Barn, 
or where was that? Do you know? It's still there. I mean, it's condos now. If that's the same one that they're yeah. talking about. Yeah, okay, yeah, see, yeah. I heard a bunch of stuff about that, and I was like, okay, well, the, 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 it, it figures into Richmond history in and, several and that's ways. That's like in Jackson Moore, like Adams and Marshall. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, well, it's Jefferson and Marshall, the corner of Jefferson and Marshall. Okay, like all the right. actual right. address is three thirteen uh, Jefferson Street. Right, like, it's right behind Comfort. Yeah, across from the. Fifth Gallery Five and like all up Absolutely, in there. Absolutely, yes. And so some hippies that had gotten booted out of you know there's there's a long history of how the dairy figures into Richmond art history, which is really fascinating. And I didn't know a lot of it till I started working on these projects. The guys that had started the Free University mm-hmm. um, that didn't last. You know they had these uh, classes and you know. A lot of people tried it in 1970 all around the country. We're going to have a university where you get a degree in growing pot or whatever. Right. Um, they had gotten kicked out because they didn't pay their rent at uh, what's now Empire, you mm-hmm. know, upstairs, the Metro Rockets. And they found the dairy building, which some investment lawyers had bought because it was it had been abandoned for, you know, almost 10 years at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh and so these investment people thought, well, we're going to buy this property and sit on it and develop it eventually. Mm-hmm. And let's get these hippies in there right now to manage the property. So the hippies started a, um, a uh, t-shirt factory on the first floor and didn't do anything with it. And so uh, maybe they rented it out to one guy. And then people started finding out about it and say, hey, you, know, you can go in this building and sort of pioneer part of it. And you know it's wide open. You know there's it's cheap as it's cheap as crap. So, you know, Hunter found out about it. He wanted to make a movie. He had made a movie already. He got in there. You know, I don't think Death Piggy was in there yet, but it became this secret mm-hmm. that people st- really cool people started finding out about it. And were it they wasn't squatting, or they were paying. Both. Okay. <laughs> you know, uh, because they were paying, but even the guys that were in there weren't even in there legally because, you know, at the time there was no fire code or right. anything. So it was, and you definitely couldn't live there and everybody lived there. Sure. Okay. So even if it was slightly legal to be occupying a building that didn't have proper plumbing, you definitely were not supposed to live there and everybody lived there. Right. And I wouldn't say it was just a secret for punks and art people. There were all kinds of people in there. I mean, there was a, there was a, uh, Richmond Philosophical Institute uh, which was uh, a group of guys that just got together. I think they had a, a, a show on uh, cable access where they just talked about philosophy. Right. And they taught us a class at Open High. Um, th- there was a lot of weird, cool things going on there, and it wasn't just centric to the punk art community. It was just weird stuff happening in there because it was cheap and it was huge. Yeah, it's interesting because um, the, the free university, actually, the first time I heard about that was when I was talking to Dale Bromfield on a, for mm-hmm. a different episode, earlier episode. Um, that's interesting to hear that they went on. To yeah, actually... and it was Russell Clem, uh, who was the landlord, per se, at, at, the, at the dairy. So the, the reason why Guar is still the way it is, which is really fascinating to me, is that the the commune aspect of how it came together really affected its mission statement mm-hmm. or its corporate identity, which is you know all for one kind of thing. Uh, and so the the reason why the origin of Guar is very hard to describe is because it it happened in such a many stages. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Death Piggy, which was um, a, a local theatrical punk band, uh, was in the Richmond area, you know, in 1984. It had been, I think, I think they started Death Piggy in 1982. Mm-hmm. They'd been playing in town, and they started doing sort of absurdist theater with punk rock, you know, uh, setting up a living room on stage and not even playing any music. You know, doing very surrealist type of things for punk people to be confused by. Right. They had a pinata full of stuff that they threw into the audience. And, you know, there, there's all kinds of, of things that, that Dave and the guys in Death Piggy were doing. Uh, Hunter Jackson was a local... Uh, CA graduate of VCU who had become disinterested in art school and decided to make um, some weird movies. And his group of people were all sort of stratifying in the dairy as well. And they had rented the space there to film a movie about barbarians from outer space. Um, And one idea was that the barbarians from outer space were here to conquer Earth, but they all got sidetracked, and one became like an alcoholic. One got a girlfriend. It was sort of a uh, mm-hmm. an idea like when you grow up, you lose these pure ideas of what you're really trying to sure. do. So one of the members had gotten in the idea of the movie, which was going to be called Scum Dogs of the Universe. One of the ideas was that that one of the guys had joined a rock band and he was no longer interested in conquering the world because he was too busy, you know, uh, getting laid or just partying. Um, so the idea was that Death Piggy was going to be part of this movie and where they were going to provide a soundtrack and they were going to uh, play some of the barbarics from outer space so right. they could kill two birds with one stone because. Sure. Um, but Death Piggy was already doing theatrical performances. So when the two met, you know, Dave was obviously like, oh, this, this, is, this is cool, you know, this is more like, I, I can, you know, I can get involved with this because it's, it's uh, where I was already going. Yeah, yeah. And Hunter was basically like, well, you know, people are paying attention to them, so that's going to draw attention to my project that, you know, is alone in this dark warehouse that nobody knows about. So they both saw like, wow, th- th- something could happen here. Equally beneficial. Meanwhile, there's all these other people that are, like, not doing much with their stuff, saying, hey, you know, I, I could build a staff or a, or a helmet, you know, what, what can I do? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I'll play this guy that gets killed, you know. And the fact that, you know, my, my opinion on how Gore started is that it, it was very, it had to be, if Dave and Hunter hadn't met, Gore wouldn't have happened. All the rest of us are important, but not as important. And the third thing is, if they hadn't met in the dairy where there was a huge building full of other artists and full of cheap space. Because mm-hmm. if you're in New York City, where are you going to find the space to do it? Where are you going to find the materials? Where are you going to find the people? It's, everyone's too busy trying to make rent. Right. You know, so it's very Richmond-centric in the way that Richmond had a really great, uh, cheap warehouse scene. A very bohemian lifestyle. Yeah, of, yeah let's yeah. just get it on. Yes, absolutely. And, 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 the, uh, and so those original stuff, though, was pretty... Uh, low tech, right? I mean, they just basically went out with like, were they like paper mache or like what? Well, uh, you know, there, there had been some early stuff where Hunter had just gone to like comic conventions mm-hmm. with the original paper mache costumes, and they had him and Chuck had gotten into a fake choreographed fight to a Death Piggy song uh, at Dragon Con in 1984, I believe, and the costumes disintegrated. 
So when they came back from that, they started using like just wood glue and strips of like bed sheets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the original stuff was pretty like, how can we make this that's going to last performances? You know, what's cheap? So wood glue, strips of cloth, um, hockey pads, you know, uh, shoulder pads, uh, lacrosse helmets, anything they could find in the thrift store or in the trash. Yeah. You know, and that's where the uh, couch cushions came from, like carving couch cushions or carving pieces of styrofoam because there's an, uh, there was an upholstery place across the alley from the dairy. <laughs> so it's really, really random. And, yeah. and the, the story of Gore is like, to me, it's like a bunch of random things happening right. that have created this thing, which is really fascinating because, um, you know, I don't think anybody that's still involved would have thought when they were 20, I'm going to still be, you know, uh, 28 years later Absolutely. doing this thing. Uh, you know, Don talks about that all the time. Like, I can't believe that I've spent my whole life with this thing that I, you know, right. just pulling couch cushions out of dumpsters yes. and then now it's your career. Yeah. And the, cause the name Guar is, because I knew when I was in high school, I thought that was an acronym. Yeah. It's not an acronym, though, no. is it? It's no. just the words that... It's a very absurdist sort of Dave Brocky thing. I don't even think, uh, according to the interviews I've done, that he came up with it. Um, it was just, you know, uh, the, the question was posed like, well, Hunter's going to put his costumes on us, on me. Uh, well, let's, you know, because Dave always takes an idea and we'll take it ten steps higher, you mm-hmm. know. So his thing was like, we should be a, a, a band of just barbarians from outer space. It shouldn't be just me. It should be like, we should be a whole band. And what, you know, and what would we be called? And I think someone at the party or, or was drinking with him was just like, ah! Right. You know, and it was, how do you spell that? You know, and it's just like, the, the first two flyers, it was basically, you know, it, was, it was, wasn't 25 letters long, it was like eight. Okay. You know, and then, because I think Hunter was really insistent on the name of the band being Scumdogs the Universe. But, you know, Dave is great as far as showmanship and as far as getting mileage into things. And it's like, that's not as cool as, you know, it's too long. Mm -hmm. You know, Scumdogs of the Universe is too, yeah, it's too complicated. Uh, Like, that's a a name for a band, you know. And so where are they playing? Um... There's a lot of clubs that don't exist anymore. Like, let's say, yeah. Going Bananas was the first club. And, uh, and like, where is it? That's like up. Like, Going Bananas was a Shaco Slip. Okay. It's a it's a sushi place now. It was a basement. A lot of punk shows happened then. Um, Richmond. That was the that's the fourth part of the story, is that the fertile ground that the seed of of Guar fell upon was so enthusiastically uh, accepted by the peers because there was you know there was the flood zone. Which is Have a Nice Day Cafe now. Mm-hmm. There was uh, PB Kelly's, which is um, Havana Fifty Nine now. Okay. There was uh, uh, Going Bananas, which is a sushi place. There was Rockets, uh, you know, which is Empire now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was uh, uh, New Horizons, which is a parking lot now. It was Corner Harrison and Broad. Um, you know, there was a lot of places to play back then. There was there were uh, Hard Times. Gore never played Hard Times, but I mean, there were so many. Hole in the wall places that reggae punk, you know. I mean, some some weekends you'd have to choose what show you're going to go to. I right. know personally that I had to choose between a metal or a punk show. You know, the Jade Elephant. I mean, a lot of these places were terrible. 
to see right. bands. <laughs> right. But you didn't care because, you know, that band is coming to town and you, you're going to see them. Sure. So who cares that the room isn't very good? Right. You know, because if you're 17, to see the circle jerks in, like, oh, absolutely. basically someone's living room. I mean, New Horizons was good upstairs. That was a big room. But um, a lot of the places were, were, were rinky-dink, were small. But didn't matter. No. And and so Guar is at that point just costumes. I mean, there's no. I mean, were there people on stage with them, or it was just a band wearing costumes? Yeah, there was. There was two shows where it was Guar, right? Where it was basically Deaf Piggy mm-hmm. in in Hunter's costumes, and there was some theatrical stuff then. Okay, Hunter would show up with the costumes, lend them to the guys. They would do sort of the Deaf Piggy skits, and that was it. Um, and and. I can't say that anyone really remembers what the skits were. They were they were pretty loose and pretty absurdist. Sure. Um, once Hunter said, "No, we're going to do this," and I think his motivation was, "We're going to film it, so I can use part of this as a, either a trailer or a shorter version of Scum Dogs of the Universe." So he got involved, and he was like, "I'm going to be the bad guy that's trying to like rein you guys in, and my girlfriend's going to be the sexy." space barbarian girl that's with me and there's going to be a loose plot. Right. When you guys do your service thing, Techno comes on, you know, and then in the end he gets defeated, you know. So that was P.B. Kelly's. That was April of 1985. They filmed it. And some of the other people from the dairy, uh, local filmmaker Ted, so there was always this sort of idea of where the slave pit was a loose collective of artists. Um... There was filmmakers. There were like um, uh, all, you know comic book artists doing the illustrations. Uh, there were. Um, but is that where the, the dairy will become known as the slave pit, or when is that? Yeah, happen? see, that's that's the concept that I've even tried to wrap my head around. Um, in in the dairy, individual people had their own studios. Right. Uh, Chuck Varga and Mike Delaney, two of the original Guar artists, had a, a space called um, the Swamp. Um, but Hunter had sort of set in stone the manifesto that he was trying to put. His space was called the slave pit. Okay. <laughs> and his idea was that the slave pit was this, well, originally it was part, his spaceship was his space, was his studio. Mm-hmm. And he was building the set that was his studio. And it had this set of stairs that went down and he was going to say, well, this whole space is the spaceship. And that's where all the slaves... It was sort of a Star Trek kind of thing. Yeah. You know, the, the guys that that put the coal into the engine or whatever, they're down in the slave pit. Right, okay. So he started calling his studio the slave pit. Delaney and, and Chuck's space was called the, the swamp. Um, I don't know if Don's space had a name. A death piggy practiced in a freezer down the hall. Um, but as Guar took over... Uh, and the movie, Death Piggy sort of broke up, and, and the movie kind of was never getting made. Uh, the, the real action moved to uh, Chuck Varga and Mike Delaney's Space the Swamp. But the, the idea that the collective was called Slave Pit was something that Hunter really had pushed. Mm-hmm. And in and then the movie that got made, War Must Be Destroyed, the credits say Guar is, and he lists the musicians... And he said, Slave Pit is, and he listed the artists. And, uh, you know, for years I remember Hunter saying, like, well, you guys took my name and sort of ran with it. And it was like, but you named the collective Slave Pit. I mean, you named it that. Right. And we just, you know, branded ourselves, you know. 
So wherever we're at, whatever studio we have, depending and, on and that movie still exists. Like that movie's around. Oh yeah, it's it's part of my documentary. I mean, it's okay, nice. I, I found a, a nice the, the the master on on Super Eight awesome. and transferred it, and it's gorgeous, you know. Uh, and it's the only thing from that era that ever really got finished because, um, you know, the the, the story of, of Gore sort of snowballing where, you know, Dave is very pragmatic in a lot of ways. And it's basically like, how are we going to fund this? You know, no one's going to fund theater. No one's going to fund a gallery show right. you know, in 1985. But people pay money at clubs. And he knew that from being death picky. He was like, we will get money to go here. Right. People pay admission to see rock bands. Right. So the fact that we're known as a rock band, you know, I don't like it as much because I think that we're much bigger than that, but it pays the bill, so I don't complain. Right. You know, I'm part of something that people have heard of because of that. So and it was a very... But as it develops, though, what is... I mean, because like nowadays, I mean, like, where... I mean, I'm just, I'm just kind of envisioning they're just playing these random clubs around in costumes. There's a little bit of theater involved. I mean, but like when it seems like a pretty big step to when like blood begins to spurt out. I mean, when is when is that all happening? Right. I mean, like, well, Don, everybody that got involved got involved because they thought like, oh well, I've got this idea and I'm, I'm going to do that. That that would be funny. How how can I how can I be part of this cool thing? Mm-hmm. You know and Everybody, there's sort of, uh, you know, Hunter always said in any interview that he ever did, or even to me personally when we would hang out, is that, you know, when people say like, no, no, uh, to, to rephrase this, uh, now everyone, even in art school, accepts uh, subculture as, as something that good stuff comes out of. But yeah. in the 80s, there was high art. And then there was junk, right? And there was no middle ground, sure. You know, and especially in art school where figuratism was definitely all the people that were teaching in the eighties were people that went to college in the sixties, and figuratism was not. It was you had to be abstract, or you were, you know, Norman Rockwell. You were an illustrator. You were right. not an artist, right? Now things have changed, and it's great. But Guar was definitely fighting things when it was like, no, we do monsters and you know uh, things like that. So. It was not something that other, and other people that that were Guar's peers, you know, were were. But everybody in Guar was like, "But we love horror movies. We love, you know, we love Star Trek. We sure. love Road Warrior. We love uh, Godzilla." And it's like no one had ever thought to combine all those things. You sure. know, it's like Guar just wanted to do, or the Slave Pit was about like, well, we like. You know, and, and that's what Hunter's idea was. He told me a million times. It's like, he hated Star Wars. He was like, it's too good. Uh, Road Warrior, that's where it's at. It should be like Road Warrior and Outer Space. And that's what he wanted to make. Scumdogs of the Universe was supposed to be Road Warrior in Outer Space with punk rock soundtrack, you know, with Death Piggy soundtrack. And so the concept was great, you know. And anybody that was that was of that era, of that age, is like, we love Evil Dead 2, which is a... Uh, uh, a very influential horror movie. Uh, Jack Kirby is a, a Marvel cartoonist, mm-hmm. and the early stuff of let's say uh, wrestling, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, which is common man's theater. 
Sure. You know, because it's just over the top and it's obviously absurdist, but some people really believe it's real. Right. But it's obviously theater for the common Absolutely. man. So that that's kind of where just mashing all these eyes to, uh, ideas together, these pop culture ideas. Everyone, no one had ever done all that and tried to cram this idea into a 300-seater club. Right. It's but embarrassing it is- to try and take a stadium idea, a KISS idea, or even more than that, a dinosaur on stage, and put it in a 300-capacity room. Sure. And because no one even bothered to do it, the fact that someone tried to do it, it was always so enthusiastic. So the next show would be like, what can we do that's going to top that? Right. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, like the original spew was just a hot water bottle under someone's arm. Right. You know, just pressing on it to make the littlest bit of blood come out when a fake arm was pulled off, you know. Um, That's a long-winded answer to your question of how did the spew come in. Right. So there was, you know, it was probably the fifth or sixth show that Don did. uh, Don was like, well, I'll be... So it's pretty quick, though. I mean, it's like developing fast. Yeah, but, you know, the thing is... costumes to, to, like... Yeah. Yeah, through 1985 into 1986, Fast would be, you know, there was only a show every, you know, six months. Right. Uh, so, because the thing is, if you're only playing town, you can't keep doing the same show yep. over. So, you're like, well, let's make this new thing. Let's do a dinosaur. You know. Uh, so, the dinosaur would debut, and then be like, well, next time, like, what what can you do to fight the dinosaur? Like, well, we'll do a giant... You know, mutate a cockroach, and we'll, we'll. And Don was like, "I want to use rubber. I want to make this costume, so I'm going to do that." So, but so like, are there? Is the story exist at this point, or when is that? Is that from the, the movie? story? Is no. The, the, I guess is, just explain a little bit what the actual story of like who these guys are, who okay. wanted the aliens and stuff. Well, you know, once again, this is a complex uh, question because the story was being written as you say, like, well, I've got this idea for something I want to build. Right. And I'm going to build it. I'm going to pay for it because there's no money anywhere. Yeah. Be like, I think it'd be really cool. I would like, or, or this, this is the motivation. I would love to play a mutated cockroach on stage. I think that's that's fun. That would be awesome. Sure. I'm just going to buy the materials. I'm going to build the costume, and then I'm going to write it somehow into the mythos. Right. Mythos is just ever evolving. Okay. And so, well, it's like, why? Well, you know, it's cool. So let's go back and retroactively say because. He's from Chernobyl. He's a Chernobyl cockroach. You know that's right. timely. You know it's 1985. Let's do something timely. So uh, Guar is so awesome that they attract, you know, evil things to come and attack them. That's all you need. It's right. just cool. But I mean, know? the idea of these guys being aliens and that are frozen. I mean, because that's basically what it is, right? They're aliens that are frozen in Antarctica, and then because I think that was of even written warming. later. There was two. Okay. I, there were two ideas. I, I didn't mean to speak no, over you. No, um, I get it. Um, yeah, the idea of them being from outer space is the first idea that, that Hunter had. Okay. The idea that they're from Antarctica or they're frozen in Antarctica, I think it's sort of, there are two ideas. One is that they're these barbarians from the cold wasteland of Antarctica. I think the idea that they got frozen there came a little later. Okay. Just to try and get those two ideas together, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so as the, the move, as the group focus sort of moved away from the movie that never really got done other than the trailer which is Gore Must Be Destroyed um, the mythos changed radically and it changed radically based on if someone came up with a character and wrote it into then that was part of the story Okay. so 
the fact the the original only original idea really is that they're barbarians from outer space. They're come to take over the planet Earth, and they get sidetracked into being a rock band. Okay. And, and so Don, they had been a character, just a representative of the sleazy rock industry, which was this manager character. Okay. That one of the filmmakers they were working with was like, "Well, I'll play that guy." Right. And I'll be their manager. I'll be Sluggo P. Martin. Right. But you know that guy didn't play the character, but once or twice, and then he went on to do other things. So when Don got involved, he said, well, I'll play his brother. I'm the new uh, man. I'm Sleazy P. Martini. And that character is still around today. Um, it's just these ideas that people say, like, well, when you're writing a story, well, we need this protagonist. We need an antagonist. Sure. You know, Hunter was like, I'll be a bad guy. We need that character. Well, I guess they're going 85, though. How long does it take for them to start touring, like, to actually play out of town? It never. The they original Guar never played out of town. Okay. You know, it was really like... Uh, the Schaefer Court show, you know, Schaefer Court was a, if people don't know, was a, an open space. There's a building there now in the middle of campus. And, uh, you know, in the 80s and even into the mid-90s, there was a fall concert. I mean, I think it started in the 70s. There was a, there was a concert series there every Friday. Mm -hmm. Beer truck would show up. It was great because you didn't have to be a student. Right. I mean, you had to show your ID to get beer tickets, but it was pretty... You know, it was, it was a very nonchalant attitude. You know, it was like this awesome band is going to play for free mm -hmm. in the center of campus, and everyone's going to be there, right? And it's going to be great, and it was. Mm -hmm. So for Guar to to play that, and what year is that? Halloween of '86. Okay, that was a huge milestone for Guar because Guar had a big stage to play on. They could really pull all stops out. A lot of everybody at the dairy said, "Well, I'm going to play a terrorist." I'm going to play the, an announcer. I'm just going to be a, a newscaster. Mm -hmm. Like, what? who else can be? I mean, the cast of the Schaefer Court Show was probably 30 people. Oh, wow. It was incredible. It was real play. Uh, a jet engine falls out of the sky. Um, they, they had a rope going from the uh, the jewelry building. Uh -huh. A wire rope and a huge in-scale airplane engine made out of cardboard slides down after terrorists blow up a plane. Wow. And, and, and it, you know, I, I've got it all on film. It's really incredible... The fact that, uh, you know, that that was a venue for out-of-town touring bands. The fact that Gore headlined Halloween of 86 was basically like, this is going to go somewhere. Right. This is not a joke anymore. We can, sure. we can take this and do something with it. Well, now, meanwhile, um, a lot of the people that were part of it weren't ready to do stuff with it. They were like, yeah, I'm just involved as a joke. Like, mm -hmm. uh, Hunter wanted to become... You know, he, he had gone to school for CA. He was like, I want to. I got a job in Detroit. Mm -hmm. He left. The whole band quit, and it was really sort of a make or break time. So Don Draculich, Chuck Varga, um, uh, you know, Dave, uh, some of the guys that were just you know, they said, we'll, we'll you know, Dave find a whole new band. You know, Gore's got local power. I could get a hold of the band. Mm -hmm. The artists were like, Yes, we want to. We want to do this. We want to like tour and make a living off of this. So there was a real idea of like, we're going to take this to the next level. Right. And so really the middle of, you know, spring of 87 was, we're going to, you know, they had recorded the demo with the earlier musicians just to kind of, you know, have around town mm -hmm. the set. You know, Dave was like, I'm going to shop this. I'm going to get, a, I'm going to get a, uh, you know, someone to record these songs. I'm going to get a new band in there. The artists were like, we're going to build props. We're going to buy a, uh, a touring bus, and we're gonna 
you know, try and do something with this. So really, the, you know, the modern era of gore starts then. Okay. And then it was really just sort of guys on the East Coast. Where can we drive? We all have day jobs. Where can we drive Friday, Saturday, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday? Right. Know, Pittsburgh, uh, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, maybe Huntington, West Virginia. You know, just really close, like three shows, Virginia Beach. Right. So all through 87 and 88, there was just a lot of like... And are you involved at that point? Uh, in 1988... Well, you... well, I saw Gore in 1987, and, okay. and I saw them with, with the Butthole Surfers, and it really changed my, my life. I would in Richmond? Or... Yeah, yeah, at Rockets. Okay. And I, uh, you know, I had been really into, into punk music, but I was in art school. So I was sort of disillusioned with art school. It wasn't what I hoped it would be. I wanted to be a cartoonist for a living. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, well, they're very against that here in art school, you know. Right. And I either have to go into CA, which is highly competitive. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to do that. So I was in painting and printmaking, and that was just sort of... I, I, I really should have been going to a technical school. Like, right. I really wanted to learn drafting and, like, you know, that kind of thing. So when I saw Guar, you know, to me, I was like, this is what I think of art school. This is just this crazy amalgamation of everything I'm into, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I saw them with the Butthole Surfers, uh, which was a, I guess, a sort of theatrical... A hard to describe band that was at the time that was very influential. Um, Definitely absurdist. Yeah, they showed um, movies over top. They set the drums on fire. They had uh, it was it was something like I'd never seen before. It was not in any sort of um, describable genre. Right. So when I saw them with Guar, uh, it was December seventeenth, nineteen eighty-seven. I really, I, I've always said when I left the club that night, I definitely left that club a different person. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's what inspires me. That kind of thing is what I want to do. Right. Um, so, you know, at the time, the, the local music scene or the art scene was a very small group of people. You could just... Um, I met the bass player, uh, Beefcake, uh, which, I, that, that's, that was his name. You know, <laughs> I, I, that was that was Mike Bishop's name at the time, and it turned that into a Quar character, but that's what people called him. Right. And I just met him on Gray Street, and uh, I just, you know, I said, we, we just knew each other from hanging out in front of shows. There was a wall on Gray Street that if you were waiting to see a band, you just, that would where if you wanted to know what was going on, you would go to Gray Street and go to that wall and say, like, what's happening tonight? Where are the parties? Where, where are the clues playing? Right. And where is that wall? It's gone. It's gone now? It's okay. gone now. It's, it's basically uh, the 800 block of Gray Street, yeah. where they've all developed now. Yeah, it was across from the Biograph, which is okay. Noodles and Company now. It's right, horrible. right. But uh, uh, there was just an empty, three empty parking lots with a little retaining wall, mm-hmm. and people would just sit there and hang out and say like, "Oh, you know, um, uh, somebody's playing at Rockets tonight." So that's, uh, that's Twitter. That's the, the 1980s yeah. Twitter. Yes, you, you absolutely. Check, yeah. So you know, I, I had met Mike Bishop there, and. Uh, you know, I, I he said, well, you know, we're 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 right around the corner. We're at 801 Broad Street, and it's like if you want to come by, and just you know, the the term that we used back then was called throw down, and it just meant work all night. You know, yeah. just jam on some stuff. Like we're we're up there like making stuff. You know, Don and and Chuck and them are up there all the time. If you want to come by, you know, just ring the doorbell. You sure. Know? Uh, so I kind of had an in, you know, because uh, and and you know it, it was rough because. The, the time period was it was the hungry dog mentality. You know, everybody was trying to make their mark in Guar, and they didn't want anybody else sort of 
getting in the way, but they wanted free help. Mm-hmm. So it was like, why are you coming around here? Because people would go there and ring the doorbell and just want to hang out and say, I was hanging out at the slave pit. You know? Right. Because it had moved from the dairy. It was right across from Rockets. It was at the corner of uh, Laurel and Broad, above what's now Aladdin. Yeah. Um, and it was an old massage parlor. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I basically was like, I'm just here to help and learn because I, I don't like what I'm doing in art school. And the, and the sculpture department was one block away. You know, it was at the corner of, uh, of uh, Schaefer and Broad. Right. Okay. Which is where the bookstore is now with the mm-hmm. parking deck. Um, so I was already in my, in my sculpture studio a block away. And I could go there in the middle of the night and hang out with Don and make some stuff and actually learn more there than I did at school because we were using materials and trying to figure out, like, oh, well, let's... Experimenting. Yeah. So um, I was, you know, just sort of... I wasn't in in Guar at all. I just was somebody coming around to, to... learn how to build stuff and do stuff that I liked better than art school. Sure, so you weren't touring with them and, or, or what they would call tour, you're going, playing out of town and stuff. No, no. And so when are they going to get, like, uh, I mean, any, you know, I guess an album? I mean, when, or, well, or the first like album the came first? out in, in the end of 88, I mean, the, the beginning of 88. So after they bought the bus and said, we're going to make something of this. Right. They start, you know, they, they, they buy the school bus, they record the first album. And they start doing that like out of town because everyone's got day jobs. Mm-hmm. So we can only do three, three weekend you know shows sure. until we start making more money where we can people can quit their job or whatever. And then, um, so then I start hanging around, uh, and uh, they do another show at Schaefer Court, which is the summer of um, 1988. And I'm basically there, and they said, we need someone to get their head cut off. You know, you're going to play that guy, you know, because uh, the other short guy, Bonner, he's, he's a slave, um, and he's going to be doing this. So if you want to play that, that decap character, which is still a character we use, is some random person that comes on stage and gets their head cut off. Um, because, I mean, it's, that's hilarious, and that's where we're at. We're like, it doesn't need to make any sense. It's sure. just fun. Um, so I just, you know... Everyone sort of organically phases in and out of, of our group, and I just was there. They needed a, a, a warm body to put a fake head on. I was mm-hmm. the person, you know. Yeah. So it was really sort of a slow growth into saying, you know, they're doing this. They they leave on their first North American tour to the West Coast and back. I'm in art school. I'm just looking after the space for them. I've and that's once they have an album and everything. And who's... Yeah. who's Label? I mean, are they on a label? They just put well, the Shimmy Disc was a, an art punk label out of New York at the time, and okay. they they had some, uh, you know, Ann Magison, who's a sort of an artist that people know about. Um, she was in a band that was on Shimmy Disc. They had a lot of like artsy punk bands at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had recorded that. They were selling that, and they just decided to do, or they were had done all the three day tours for like a year, and so. The fall of '88, they did their first like to the West Coast and back. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone, you know, said, "Well, I'm going to quit my day labor, labor job, or I'm just going to hopefully have my job when I come back, and I'm going to leave for six weeks, and we're going to yeah. go to the West Coast." And Dave booked a real rudimentary tour out there. I have the tour book, and it's basically like they get to a town, they play a show, everyone would go nuts. They'd say like, "Well, we have a day off tomorrow," and say like, "Oh, come and play this club." So 
half the tour is being booked while they're on the tour. Right, sure. You By know. shoestring. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, are they success? Are the people coming out to see this, or is it? Just, I mean, I guess it was a success in a way that people were so blown away that the next time they came back, there were more people. But I mean, if you look at the ledger which I have, it's very like we're going to get enough gas to get to the next club, right? And then you know, people basically had a five dollar a day like eating allowance. But so, and I guess that's what the first of 12, 13 albums. Uh, yeah, 13, yeah, thirteen's just come out, right? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, the the. The new one just came out, so that's okay. the yeah. yeah. So I mean, I guess are they? Um, I mean, is the how, how developed would the show have been at that point? Is it still pretty rudimentary, or are we talking about well, like, how a, many people are touring with them? Um, well, it's the five band members, and then you know, uh, Don is playing sleazy, Hunter is playing techno. They have a guar woman. Uh, uh, Danielle had joined by that point. Um, who was is the girl? She was an art school uh, student who was interested in the same kind of thing, and the idea of having a, a female presence was really appealing mm -hmm. to uh, you know because everyone yeah, you gotta have a lady there yeah everyone loves yeah, you know, good looking ladies so yeah. um, Danielle really developed that character and came in and could sort of hang with the guys you know she right. could sleep in a miserable cold uh, tour bus so it was the five musicians. Uh, and then depending on how big the show was or how much they could say like, well, you know, it was like basically four other people, sure. Chuck, Don, Hunter, and Danielle. And then the slaves are basically guys that can play just someone to help, but also run back and play like a victim, mm -hmm. you know, or a random Yeah, yeah. Like a scene change, yeah, yeah, or a yeah. costume change. Yeah. And, and so I'm wondering like at that point, because um, it seems like uh, Guar doesn't exist without MTV. Right, with that new visual type of, um, you know, based on the album sales, the idea there, it seems like, you know, pre-MTV, it seems like a band like that, you know, even a lot of the folks, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to say, like, I mean, even like some of the Dave Bowie stuff, when he gets into where it's very, very visual. Right. Right, so... Um, I mean, because that comes in there, they get pretty strong rotation on, like, Headbangers Ball and stuff, right? I mean, later. Like, is that MTV later than that? Real, I mean, uh, the success of our organization is really through our hard work. We have okay. never... Kurt Loder liked us and tried to get us on MTV because he was a real guy, and he saw us for what we were. He liked us. He, he put us on one little spot at the New Music Seminar in 1989, and that was the only coverage we got from MTV for years. Really? Our fan base was really developed off... Every time we'd go back to a city, more people would show up. They'd always say, like, you should have seen this show they did last year. They're going to do something different this year. That's wild. And it's just... And it, and it got Word raunchier and raunchier every time. And yeah, just... and, and it was really, like... Um, it, we're, we're the the last of the sort of organically cultivated word-of-mouth kind of thing. Like, when, you know, even the reviews we get today are like, the, the new album is great, they're great musicians, you have to see the live show. Right. Like, you know, like, the, and the musicians, I think, get a little, uh, a bad rap, because it sometimes is overshadowed by the show. Sure. Because if they were bad musicians, we'd be out of a job. Right, sure. You know, but a lot of times people just say, like, the show, the show, the show. You know, and I'm proud of that because that's the part that I do. But it would have only gone so far if it was a jokey plink and plonk, like you know, right, right, you right. Know, and, and early on, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. But when it made the step up, like we've always had, you know, world class musicians. So um, 
Right, right. Uh, Whether you but, like metal or not, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a good. They're doing a good job as playing metal music. Yes, and and um, that's the thing. Like a lot of people that started finding out about us didn't like metal. They just said like, "Well, that's an incredible show." Mm-hmm. So I think we were just trying to go for people. You know, you, if you if you don't like metal, you'll appreciate the theater. If if you don't like horror movies, you'll appreciate the music. Right. There's just a lot there. Right. You know? I mean, we're the blue man group of <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually a great way to put it. And it is there, I know the pop culture stuff um, is pretty, because I, I remember a lot of that when I was growing up. Like, that, um, I mean, was that, I mean, because I know it, it comes out of a lot of, you know, as absurdist as it is, you know, this concept of, you know, which I'm assuming comes on, like, when uh, that first album, I think, has, you know, them in Antarctica freezing. I, I can remember wrong, but... Or at least there's one of the albums has a narrative on there. I remember reading it on there, and being like, "Oh, so this is what the story is here." There, there's light in all of it. We always kept thinking we were going to get somebody to front money to do a movie with the real origin. And there's there's flashbacks in all of our long form movies where that that story is. Um, Life in Antarctica is the first long form video that came out with the second there you album. Go. That's that's what it is. Yeah. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, but I mean that in itself, within the absurdist, you know, blood spewing, spewing everywhere, and you know, monsters and stuff. I mean, the idea of being in the '80s with Reagan, the idea of them being defrosted by global warming is, you know, not absurdist. I mean, it's it's all wrapped up in actual political uh, ideals and the. It was actually pretty wild. Was, uh, one of the things I was seeing is, you know, even um, after 9-11, um, it was an interview with um, Dave Brockie who was talking about that Bin Laden comes out, and I guess they kill Bin Laden, and then Bush comes out all happy, and then he gets killed as yeah. right? So, so it's, it's an, there's an equal opportunity, you know, absurdist My, uh, commentary. What, what came into it, and I, don't, I think it was a later edition, because you could say early on we were very... Star Trek, wrestling, uh, Marvel Comics kind of uh, influence was was Mad Magazine, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's basically like yeah yeah we're we're fairly liberal in our tastes, but anybody that's in charge is is gonna get is gonna get killed, right? <laughs> you know, and and that's really ultimately we're Mad Magazine, sure, you know, because they're probably a liberal based institution, but they make fun of Obama more than anybody. Right. I mean, that's the thing we we. Anybody that's in charge is gonna get like made fun of. I mean, sure. that's an American tradition. That's a very like uh, a tradition and of like. And also, yeah, the get leaders must made be fun of and yeah. just get mangled as well. Yeah. Um, so there's also within that mangling is a lot of trouble that's come along, right? Like, what's up with the like? I, I know there's been at least the a couple pro- well, uh, things of the the there was a, well there was a Sarah Palin thing I'd say more you know it's weird and that's very it's also very American that the violence has never really been an issue okay it's it's the sex okay and you know uh, that's just sort of like more of a, a a tradition of Greek you know just oversized like I mean everything we do is oversized and like absurd and, yeah and it can't be taken like the the people got upset in in England and the first. Uh, British tour got canceled because of um, the tabloids fed into it, and that was all really actually good for us. Okay, you know um, the obscenity charge in the fall of 1990, you know where Dave went to jail. That was more the religious, you know, because of the fact that and we was were, that was North Carolina. Yeah, we okay. were killing the the, pre, the preacher. Okay, and he gets uh, sodomized by a cross, you know, and and so 
like the you know there, there's lots of things in that show we had which was really odd about that show is that it was a show about censorship because in 1990 the the Tipper Gore thing was a real big thing okay so we had a show where um, we were just trying to push every button like there was a thing about missing children how Gore was stealing all the missing children there's some milk cartons came out and danced around it was like have you seen me you know it was mm-hmm. a song uh, where uh, you know we were uh, Taking on the religious right, we, you know, we, we a preacher comes out and tells us we're satanic, and he gets he gets uh, anally raped, um, you know. But it's with a giant foam rubber butt, you know, and with a, a cross. It's all very it's completely absurdist. It's absurdist, exactly. And so, um, the motivation I think, and based on what this author has written, is that the local authorities wanted to shut the club down more than any more than they wanted really cared about Guar. Um, but, um, you know, I nearly went to jail because I was playing priest, mm. uh, and Dave was still wearing the rubber penis backstage when the cops came backstage as soon as we walked off stage. And, you know, he went to jail for, you know, they just found something in the thing saying, you know, like, uh, obscenity in front of minors, even though it was a fake, you know, and it doesn't even look like a penis. It looks mm-hmm. like a, a, a monster. It doesn't even look like, it looks like a, a a tentacle of some kind, but you know that was the first thing, and, and you know it, it. I really sucked for Dave; he went to jail for the night. But that got us on MTV News. My grandmother called me; she saw us on <laughs> on the, the national news about Dave getting arrested. Um, you know, so that was the first one. The second one was was better in a lot of ways because. We were doing some stuff in a show, and it was right after the, the L.A. riots. It was 92. Uh, the Rodney King beating had happened. So we thought it would be funny if a cop came out on the stage, and instead of you know, this man being beaten down by cops, we'd have a cop being beaten down by a bunch of guys. Mm-hmm. So a cop comes out. He sort of looks like a pig. He's sort of this absurd caricature. Um, tries to shut the show down. Uh, you know, that doesn't go well with us. We beat him down in the really, we've had to try to choreograph it just like the Rodney King beating. So right. we're like, okay, well, cops are going to get it back. We're going to lampoon this. Mm-hmm. Um, so our sound man at the time was um, basically one of our group, and he had our same kind of ideals. And so the police saw that, and they tried to shut, the, they told him to turn the soundboard off. And he said, no, you, you know, this is a, you know, public establishment. You, you, you can't tell me to turn this thing off. Yeah, well, I won't right. do it. And so there were several other things, of, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of mock violence and everything. So by the end of the show, into our, into our um, uh, uh, encore, they came up to him and they said, if you don't turn the, this off now, we are actually going to arrest you. You know, we're going to take you out of the club and we're going to arrest you. And Scott, he was like, you know what, it's the encore. Like, sometimes they don't even do an encore. There's no big deal here. It's light compromise. And he was like, you know what, fine. And he just turned everything off. He said, cool, you know, we're, we're done. And we were on stage, we were just like, oh, I guess we blew the power in the building. Cool, we can go clean up now. Right. Um, some kids from, you know, the college there saw it happen, and they went right to the ACLU, and they said, our, our rights have been violated. These cops turned off this thing. You know, they had no right to do this. Mm-hmm. Our rights were violated. We were, we were deprived of something we paid to see. Um, so the ACLU, ACLU called us and said, you want to be part of the suit? And we said, Absolutely. 
Yeah. You know? Part of the suit was whatever money we got, we had to donate to a charity. Like we were not doing it for money. Right. It was not motivated in financial gain. It was motivated in like you can't just go somewhere and tell someone to turn Absolutely. it off because you do dislike the content. Right. You know. Uh, so the ACLU won, mm-hmm. and we got a uh, check. Mm-hmm. And so, and the best part of the story is, of course, Dave's flair for the dramatic. He, or, or I can't remember who decided it, it was probably Dave, was going to accept the check in character, <laughs> as you know, from the cops, and in a publicized thing, because right. they had to, part of the agreement was they had to give, they had to give us the part of the money that we were going to give to a charity, you know, in a, in a public thing saying, we're sorry, you know, here's, here's the check. Sure. So, of course, he decided to accept it as odorous, mm-hmm. you know, on TV in a- Athens, uh, Georgia, and the ACLU was present. And so, because we were giving it to the Miss and Children's Foundation, because we had a whole thing where we were stealing children in our, in our, uh, you know, fake mythology, um, Dave had a little dead kid puppet that we had made, and he took the check from the policeman's hands with the little dead. It was the most absurdist piece of theater I'd right. ever seen. Um, I, you know, I don't know where the footage is. I've got some photographs of it. Sure. But the look on the policeman's face and just... It was the most vindicating thing I think I've ever been part of. It was... <laughs> I had a hard time. Up. I had a hard time watching it because it was so uncomfortable. It was yeah, definitely an Andy, Andy Kaufman esque piece of a living theater. You sure. Know? Um, and of course, I couldn't stop laughing. I had to go uh, around the corner and just you know. Right, but and that's going to be uh, so that would you say it's ninety two three? That was ninety two. That was the second uh, thing we got in trouble for. I mean, and that's it. Seems like that you know that's another big, pretty big publicity, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that, I mean yeah. and it's. You know, there seems to be a kind of a lull that goes on after that, right? Is that like... Well, you know, there, there's several things that happened. Uh, we, we, did some, we made some mistakes where we, we you know, uh, the, the th- once Nirvana, which is, you know, once Nirvana basically made alternative mainstream, mm-hmm. it was sort of a feeding frenzy where it was just like everybody wanted to get on a major, you know, Sonic Youth and all these people were being picked up. And we could have been part of that, mm-hmm. but artistically, uh, within our group, we were kind of fighting like, hey, let's make more money. But we were, we were making pretty good money at the time, for, as far as advances for albums and advances for long-form videos. Like, we were employing a lot of people at mm-hmm. that point. Um, uh, and so, you know, some people were like, yeah, let's let's go with a major group. We are going to get it picked up by, by Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, Dave and some other people were like, no, let's stick to our guns and just be, like, absurdist and filthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Because they wanted you guys to change. Just slightly. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that it, it it's not an all-or-nothing scenario. Yeah. And I think we reacted a little too uh, childish, like, no, we're, we're going to keep our... We're going to be 100%, like, we're not going to change at all. Or we're mm-hmm. going to get actually filthier. Right to push their buttons because we're at war and we're like awesome, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that was a mistake. And I think that definitely like, well, Metal Blade lost their Warner distribution because that's because you guys were of signed us. to Metal Blade to Metal Blade, yeah. who had distribution through Warner Brothers. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and so that's and how did Metal Blade feel about that? Um. I don't think they liked it. I mean, I'm not, it's not like I talked to anyone at Metal Blade. So, yeah. I mean, I do know the president of the company, but we don't. I don't talk to him about that. Like, yeah. Um, 
But I think, you know, it, the idea of Guar being a punk rock Disney, where it was basically like, we're going to do films now, and sure. we're going to... Um, that would have killed it as, as much as anything else, right? I mean, that would Well, have been... no, I think, I think we were all too busy being artists when we should have become more um, like, well, I'm going to seek out a deal with a film. Like, we, we were basically like, give us money to make this cool film that we want to make. And we would take all the money, make the film, and then... Malblade had never distributed films, right. so they just basically made a, a VHS of it, and it sort of just went away and went into some cutout bins. You know? Sure. I mean, the first long-form video, or, or the second long-form video of Phallus in Wonderland got us our first Grammy nomination. Right. So, we basically... And what like, year is that? That was 1990. 1990. Okay, yeah. yeah, awesome. Yeah. So, you know, things... We were... We were making like noticeable increases in our. Of, and, did, and did they show up in costume to the Grammys? Yes, they and were did. turned away. That's yeah, and so and and Dave, of course, in his press release, insulted the entire Grammy uh, institution, which right. was awesome. It was hilarious. He called it um, a, a gift bestowed upon them by a retarded child. You know, just basically insulting the entire institution because we were mystified that how we even got on their radar to begin with because I always assumed it was due to record amount of record sales. I mean, we were up against MC Hammer and, and Annie Lennox and, and what was Public it for? Enemy. Uh, best long form video. Oh, wow. Yeah, of 1990. Uh, so it was in 1991. Oh, no, it was in 1990. The, the movie came out in 1991. So in 92, we were, we were nominated for the year before. Okay, yeah. Even though we made it in 1990, um, the movie. So we began this tradition of every time a new album would come out, we would get some money from the from the record label and say, hey, we were nominated for a Grammy. We put that together for, like, nothing in, yeah. our, in our warehouse. Um, give us more money, and, you know, this is going to be good for you because we're going to make a full movie here, and the last one got nominated for Grammy. Um, so we got, like, $90,000 to make this movie, and we, we filmed it on... You know, some on 35, some on high 8. Like, we did this, you know, really crazy story that we'd always wanted to tell. It was probably the most nutso story that goes all over the map. It's called Skullhead Face. And our idea was to make this cult film that would be showed like Rocky Horror Picture Show. You yeah. Know, in, in Midnight, because it is it is the most insane. It's even hard to follow, and I wrote part of the script. You know, it's, it really is Gore's origin... Uh, uh, just all these any idea that we had we stuck in this movie and mm -hmm. it's really weird um, I, I think it's hilarious but you know obviously those are my tastes Metal Blade didn't know what to do with it so they just released it on DVD I mean on, on VHS and it went and so a lot of people that put the, a lot of their heart into that project were really you know upset by that because the idea, the promise at this point, you know, 93 was that, or early 94, was that we weren't just going to be a rock band. Yeah. We were going to be filmmakers, cartoonists. We we're going to turn this, the slave pit into a Disney. Yeah. Like an empire of ideas. But, you know, we were so busy being artists, you know, we didn't know. We should have been in charge. We should have been just making something and saying, well, we've done the hard part. Now you, now you go make us money with this product. Yeah, because yeah. we gave it to Metal Blade. They were a record label, not a yeah, movie distribution. Yeah, right. so, But it must have done all right, because you got a, another Grammy nomination. No, not for that. We but got, I mean, for something else, eventually, right? I mean, you for can't... a song. Oh, okay. So, that was... so I'm very proud that the, the musicians have been nominated for a Grammy, and the artists have been nominated. Even though we're all the same. Right. You know, it shows different that... Different departments. Different departments. Yeah, that, that somebody noticed how good 
songwriting is. Yeah. Got nominated for Best Metal Song of 1995, you know, or uh, which was SFW, which was in a movie. Um, it was the theme song to this movie, SFW, that no one remembers. But we got a Grammy, a Grammy nomination for that as well. And um, so, yeah, we're, we, we're two-time Grammy losers. <laughs> That's good, though, right? Yeah, yeah. you got to be in it to win it. Yeah. And the uh, you got to be in it to lose it as well. Um, I mean, so that's I mean that's pretty much acceptance at that point. I mean, like you know, right? I mean, that's. I mean, I'm, I'm right? not the, sure about that. Gets there. Yeah, I mean, I mean the the because when is it starting to get? Because I know you guys like uh, like especially with Dirt, it seems like everywhere, right? I mean, like at some point he was on um, uh, Springer, he was on Sally Jesse Raphael. Yeah, uh, uh, like, well, it was, it was Joan Rivers. There was like Joan Rivers, right, right. Yeah, uh, uh, Jerry Springer was a little later. It was '96. It, it aired in '97. There was never any lull as far as we're concerned. Gore has always been doing its thing. It's depending upon, you know. Uh, sometimes you say like, well, it's always surprising to me when I meet people, and I'll meet. I, I downplay what I do for a living because mm. I'm, you know, I like being behind the scenes. I don't like, you know, Dave is. Dave. He's the front man. Yeah. Right. I like being the guy behind the scenes. I'm proud of what I do, but I don't need to wear it on my sleeve because, you know, I, I do it for the reasons I do it. And so when I meet people, I might meet an art school kid and they'll say, like, well, what do you do for a living? And I say, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, make theatrical costumes and stuff. And they'll say, like, oh, you know, have you ever heard anything like that? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, I, I try and put it off as far as, as often as I can until I don't have to say it. And I say, well, I'm, I'm in Gore. And I'll be surprised. Sometimes, like an art school kid, will be like, "Oh, never heard of that." Is that? Is that? And I was like, "Well, we're kind of cult, you know." And then the same situation will happen where I'm talking to a lawyer, and they'll say, "Of course, I've heard of Warren." Right. So our, I, I'm always mystified at who knows who we are and who doesn't. Right. And it's never along any sort of lines that you would that you sure. would think. You know, people have randomly seen us in uh, Empire Records. Some mm -hmm. people, that's how they found out about Warren. You know, there's mm -hmm. there's a scene in that. It's a mainstream movie that came out in 1995, where uh, the, the the lead character um, is is uh, eating a hash brownie, and he hallucinates that he's at a Gore show, and um, they filmed it live on stage. We we nice. Ethan Embry, he still comes to see our shows. Like he he was a pretty big actor in the mid 90s, but not so much anymore. But um, um, so we've had little. Tickles of mainstream, but you know our our fan base is very devoted, and we have people that support us. You know, regardless of that, we never had a, a song on the radio. We've never had you know um, any sort of really mainstream success ever. You know, I mean, we've had Dave was a comment uh, late night talk uh, commentary on uh, on Fox News for yeah, like how did that. Um. You know, I think they were trying to stay current, and they had had a couple sort of... I mean, it, it really is absurdist, you know, that, that um, they they asked him to talk about something, and he wowed him so much, because he is just, you know, funny thing after funny thing, you mm -hmm. know, and he, they just were like, this guy's quick, he's funny, you know, people that have never even heard of Guar were like, who was that guy that was on, who was that monster that was, count, you know, on late night Fox News? And, and when is that? Uh, that was just... Like four years ago. Yeah, because it was what's called the red eye. Yeah. Because I had never heard of that until I saw I started poking around and like it was insane to yeah. see. It. I mean, I was like, "What are you talking?" And he was like, the first one he was actually like a live spot, and then he was like, uh, I guess like what do you call it? Like 
satelliting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, there was a but, delay. A lot of times he would complain. He had to go over to the Fox affiliate here in Richmond and do it, and it was okay. sort of a, a, a delay um, with the answer and questions. So there was a couple times it was kind of awkward, but you know, sometimes they would give him the stuff so he could prepare. Sometimes it was just him off the cuff because he is pretty quick and sure. hilarious. Um, and then, you know, the really hilarious thing about that is is that, you know, as you said earlier in the interview, we've been lampooning, you know, both George Bush, Obama, uh, you know, we, we kill pretty much everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, we just, Gore doesn't care. Right. They're not politically motivated. They're just, oh, it's a leader. Let's kill him. Yeah. Um, we had been doing Sarah Palin. Mm-hmm. And uh, she found out about it and was personally offended that we were basically saying, oh, oh they're making fun of me. Like, like she's something special. Right. You know, and, and it was, I was saying, uh, you know, we've been doing that to every political figure since Ollie North, basically. Right. Go you on. know? Yeah. So, but she got, basically she had some pull with Fox News and she got Dave taken off. Huh. You know, which... I mean, if you're talking a humorless jerk, it's just so like, you know, uh, that's the example of that. It's just like, you're, you're not really special. We we just lampoon everybody. everybody yeah, you know? yeah. But, uh, you know, Dave made, of course, a press field day of that. So he was just like, Sarah Palin got me pulled from Fox News, sure. which was absurd that he was on Fox News to begin with. Right. But yeah. so it's never bad for us. Yeah, no. It really no, no. can't be. Well, I guess that's kind of the concept, right? It's just, again, it's being outrageous. Yeah. And the more outrageous... And it's really, I guess, the thing is the like that's a great example of being maybe not less outrageous, but no more outrageous, but still getting the the same publicity, right? I mean, it's like, but um, and so that's like what I mean. The it's been like thirty years. Is it thirty years almost? Twenty eight. Twenty eight. Yeah. I mean, that's still ridiculous for any for any rock band. Yeah. In general, I mean, that's yeah. it's like the nuts and bolts of of what this is. So the it's each album. Are they themed album? I mean, yes. they're each album is a story. Yes. Right. And does each tour, like when you go see a live show supporting a specific album, is it um, the album front to back as in telling that story, or is it? Um, yeah. Well, it, it's uh, it's gotten a lot better as uh, we've refined. You know, it, we've refined how we do things. Uh, Dave will usually... It used to be sort of more haphazard, I suppose, than it is now. Mm -hmm. Now it's written. You know, there's always a bunch of songs that are just general songs about Guar being Guar, killing things. Mm -hmm. um, Dave it makes a thematic attempt to string them together. Sometimes they're just randomly interchangeable songs mm -hmm. about Guar being Guar, you know. Um, but it's a show. It's not... You know, it is an actual... Like, there's a narrative in yeah, any show. Yeah, but not every single song... Right, some are just some are just for yeah. fun, just yeah. to see what happens. Yeah, but the last the last like um, like let's just say even I'd say five albums have been like this is the theme for this album, and you know here are the major songs that support that those mm -hmm. you know themes. There's some other general ones in there. It, so when they write a set list, when we write a set list for a live show, we'll say we're going to use these four really important songs for this narrative. Yeah. And then people want to hear stuff from Scum Dogs and want to hear stuff from Hello. These, these are former albums. We'll interchange those because those can go with this character that we're going to build or that. That's a good song for this kind of action. Mm -hmm. People haven't heard that song from this old album. They're clamoring for that. Let's make 
this character come out during that. Sure. So we've gotten really good as far as saying, like, let's keep a healthy balance. Uh, we did a a, 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 a concept album. Um, they're all concept albums. But we did one that was basically, um, you know, uh, the Inferno. You know, it was basically Dante's, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it was Flora's descent into the interior of the Earth. Right. And, and basically we just copied it and just put political figures and uh, we had this character that was uh, in hell that was uh, Hitler's punishment in hell is to be uh, grafted onto Jesus. So he was, he was, you know, he turned around. He, his front of him or the back of him was Hitler and the front of him was Jesus. Yeah. And uh, he was Jitler. Okay. And uh, he, uh, he was sort of the, uh, you know, the, the, the narrator that was leading us through the levels of hell. Sure. Um, and that tour, we actually did the entire album from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. But it was very written specifically about Guar's descent into hell and all the different political and religious leaders. So we were lampooning everybody. Right. Like, um, and, you know, we didn't get a lot of bad press about that. I mean, there's there's we were lampooning Arabs and, you know, Christians and Jews. We were just basically lampooning everybody. Right. And, we're, and we were like, oh, man, are, are you know, is people going to come down on us about this? And it was like, well, that's what Guar does. At this point, right. we had just become, this was like 2006. Um so it was actually kind of disappointing we didn't get more <laughs> more flack about like you know the devil being Jewish you know right. or having Muhammad come on stage whose head was a bomb you know and he had a sparkler sticking out of it and sure la, 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 la. you know it was a lot of things that we were hoping would offend more people but it's at this point we're just you know Mad Magazine we're an institution of offense so well it's like I, I kind of think of it as like uh, the the Family Guy or uh, right. like Benny Hill like yeah. it's like it's like Benny Hill is um, racist, but it's funny because he's racist to everyone. Yeah. Right? So yeah. it's like, even to white people, you know, yeah. he's like offensive to everyone. Yeah. Um, and like, so there's like a certain amount of like, you know, if you take it in, in a vacuum, like say or Palin type thing where it's like, you know, you're making fun of me. It's right. like, that's offensive. But when you realize you're making fun of everyone equally, it yes. makes, it almost demystifies making fun of or, right. or whatever that, you know. Well, there's no power to it because it's not right. real. Right. You know, it's not, it's just, you know, th- we're not, we're not people uh, in charge looking down on you. Mm-hmm. We're making fun of ourselves, of you, of your sister, you know. Absolutely. And it's when someone's in charge and they're better than you and they're saying, it's so funny that you're less than me. Yeah. And when you come at it from that angle, it's not funny. Sure. At all. It's, it's racist. Right. But when you're, you know, in, in part of it, you're saying, no, it's all, you know, it's, it's Blazing Saddles. Mm-hmm. I saw Blazing Saddles recently, and every one of the in-jokes, nobody in the room laughed but me. Right. You know, because it's not proper now, and I was like, it was written by a Jewish guy and Richard Pryor. Right. You know, it is funny. It's hilarious. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's one of the funniest movies ever. It holds up. Um, yeah. But, you know, the people in the room were obviously thinking, I can't laugh at this, you know. Right. I knew they wanted to laugh. Sure. You know. Uh, I certainly laughed really loud. Right. Um, because I'm not, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of money and I'm not, you know, I don't think that way. It's funny yeah. because I don't think that way, not because I do think that way. And um, the, so, um, but I guess in, so the new the new tour, I mean, you guys, because you guys are going back out on tour 
I guess by the time this comes out, you'll be already back on tour, right? This well, a, we d- we don't know. Our, our right now, we've toured so much the last couple of years. We just did entire North America with the new show from the new album. Uh, we're going to go to Australia in February, and um, probably do an amalgamation because they've only, we've only been over there one time. So we just basically do a best of. Mm-hmm. You know, we just do whatever we have, um, and then because they're not aware of. Every, they haven't been in like an America where we've done every single tour. They're, everything's right. new over there. So sure. we're going to do the dinosaur and a couple political figures. We're just going to do like, this is what Guar does. We right. come out, we lampoon stuff, we kill it. Sort of the greatest hits. Yeah. Um, so really, you know, we're, we're constantly, we'll probably go to Europe this summer. And is know? it true that I, somewhere I saw that you have costumes in Gua- in Europe? Yes. Because it's too expensive to ship, right? Or is that... Well, we, yeah, just... I mean, we've tried to be smarter about the way we make money because, you know, as I've said earlier in this interview, it used to be we just said, whatever we want to do, we're going to do. And right. it doesn't matter how much money it takes. And as we've gotten older and smarter, it's been like, you know, what we do is pretty cool. How can we tailor it just slightly. Uh, we found a, a place that does festival tour uh, storage over there through through festivals where people will fly in, do one show, you know, they'll have their gear in a, in a storage, they'll pull it out for that one show. So shipping this stuff, for us, we go to Europe, we've been to Europe 11 times, mm-hmm. and we've pretty much broken even or lost money a lot of those times. Mm-hmm. Because we wanted to go to Europe, we, we thought it was a long-term investment that eventually it would start making us money, and it never really did. So the idea of keeping a, a set of stuff over there um, to fly in, do a show or two, was this real smart idea. Mm-hmm. And we, we have been able to, you know, start, you know, either making money or at least not losing any money. And right. um, so we have a set of, of costumes in Australia. We have a set of costumes in Europe. And um, we can just fly in and, and do that kind of thing, yes. Out of... 28 year 27 28 28 so I mean you, you obviously had like probably the, the biggest hurdle right I mean when you lost your guitar player on on tour yeah I mean yeah. that's brutal I mean that's yeah. I mean to lose anybody and then you know to be that close yeah um, you know and it really was important to me uh, personally but I think I, I can kind of speak I think for everyone else is that the strength of our organization as far as how we've all lived and worked together for mm-hmm. so long is what got us through that because, um, you know, the idea of coming home was foremost in our idea, in our minds when it happened. We were like, we have to go home. And then as we sat there waiting for the, the police to, to sort of figure things out, um, we thought like, you know, this is what we do. Like we, we, uh, we make money like how can we how can we pay for his widow like how can we like Mm -hmm. would it be a disservice for us to play tomorrow night right you know and then we were just like you know we are going to take care of his widow we're going to take care of ourselves like not playing would be the wrong thing to do that's a hard thing to uh to come to grips with very quickly absolutely and the fact that we're Basically, like a dysfunctional family. And I guess um, where where were you guys? Oh, we were on the Canadian border. We were okay. in uh, in uh, North Dakota, I believe. Okay. Um, uh, so pretty far away from home. Yes. Yeah. 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 And it was a real. It. I mean, obviously, it was a real mess. Um, but you know, uh, the the fact that we are 
basically a family. Um, and the fact that we didn't come home was the best thing that we did because if we had come home, we wouldn't have helped anybody. We wouldn't have helped right. ourselves. We all probably would have had nervous breakdowns alone in our own houses. The fact that we were able to grieve collectively mm-hmm. was a real testament to our uh, our group being a collective um, that we could kind of interact with. I mean, we're not real... Um, you know, sort of emotional type of people. We're, we're all kind of individuals and very private. But, you know, to go through that all together was the, was the healthiest and the smartest thing to do. We were able to set up the foundation for uh, for Jamie, or the family set up its own organization, but we would just sort of try to uh, facilitate those things happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it was real awkward and hard, but, I mean, we it had to be. There could be no other way about that, but... Uh, the fact that we did do it that way, I, I, I think was was uh, was perfect. It was it was it was the most intense and hard thing ever. But um, the strength of the organization pulled us all through it. Yeah, is, sure is what I'm trying to say. And and um, yeah, I, I, I uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. Yeah, I mean it's just brutal. <laughs> yeah. And then I guess the um, so who plays now? You have like a like on the album. Is it not like a number of different people playing it? Well, what we did was, out of respect, you know, many people have played these characters over the years. Yeah. Corey was not the first person to play Flattis. Uh Uh, He was, you know, I couldn't even count the number of people that had played that character before him. Um, But out of respect for him, we retired the character. Okay. And we just basically, and because of Gora's evolving mythos. Did the character die? He went back to space. Okay. You know. Which essentially is, you know, right. me- metaphorically, it's whatever, you know. Um, we have the molds, and uh, one thing that I did as my new sort of role as, uh, you know, curator or whatever is um, his costume uh, is now in the Grammy Museum in L.A. Oh, wow. They had a, a, a metal uh, show where they wanted something lent to them, a costume or some, you know, ephemera or whatever. And I just said, well, here, here's what I want to do. I was like, yeah. I want people to know about this, and so uh, we're going to just give you the costume. Sure. So it was on display for, I don't know, six months, and then uh, now it's in their permanent collection, so it will go back out depending on what you know rotating show they have. Mm-hmm. But they own it, and the, the other two costumes we have to get back from uh, Australia and Europe, and I'm, I'm in touch with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right now. They want some Guar stuff. Um, Valentine, I'm giving some real old Guar stuff, some mm-hmm. of the earliest stuff for their permanent collection. But I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, having Corey's stuff in different museums is kind of important to us. So yeah, sure. I'm, I'm going to make that happen. I already did it once, but uh, we have to get his other costumes back from Europe. And, and so the character was retired out of respect to him. And then we just basically, because of Guar's evolving mythos, um, we just thawed thought okay. out a new a new character. Either he nice. came from space, we haven't even really figured that out yet. <laughs> he he just, either, he's, he's there. Yeah, it he's matter. there. And he's one of the same tribe. Mm-hmm. And uh, Matt McGuire, who's a uh, really great Guar artist, he's been involved a really long time. He basically, you know, uh, mo- most Guar costumes evolve over time and mm-hmm. get better and better and better. To, to, to be that level instantly is kind of hard, but Matt's a great artist and he just basically did some sketches and everyone's like, that looks great. And so he made the whole character pretty much by himself. Um, and, you know, Brent, 
our new guitar player, he had been friends with Corey, and his, his wife is very close to Corey and Corey's wife. So not only is he a great guitar player, but he's, it was more about a personality fit than it was a technical fit. Right. Because we had lots of guys coming out of the woodwork. Lots of guys had played on the album while we were trying to write after Corey passed, before we got Brent. Um, so it wasn't a problem. We could find someone technically. Right. It's more just finding someone who would be part of the slave pit kind of more uh, personality-wise. Sure. And, and our new guy is, is great. You know, he's very into the idea of the, of our, of the group, and he's a pretty cool character. So, so that's worked out really well. And, and we took a long time. I mean, we, we didn't even start trying people out for uh, over a year. Wow, okay. You know, we just toured with the four-piece, and uh, every night we had like a little thing at the end of the show where we had Corey's uh, guitar and we had a, a spotlight on it and it was very much about like oh wow you know yeah it was kind of intense too we had mm-hmm. a, a little thing in the encore that was just basically like you know and uh, and everybody got it like our fans were incredible our fans were incredible from the moment it happened on like the fact that we played the very next night when we went on stage man the the people chanting Corey's name and you know they they got it wow so it was it was pretty uh, intense um but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, once again, the strength of organization as far as uh, uh, supporting each other and our yeah. different uh, things that we do. So, uh, Just get another 30, right? Another, another 30 <laughs> years going, right? <laughs> What's the problem? Well, it's, it's really a matter of how we want to do that. If we want to replace ourselves, uh, if we want to retire temporarily, or if we want to... I mean, we, we outright own... The best thing about never having any sort of corporate funding is that... You know, we own some of our songs we don't own. We own the majority of them, and we just license them to people. We own our intellectual property, all our characters, all that. Um, and just being smarter businessmen as we get older and figuring out what can we do to, to license these characters, to, you know, license our intellectual property to video games, be it, you know, uh, um, anything. The people still know that we're doing stuff, but we don't have to kill ourselves on tour. Now, we could, you know, franchise it and just replace it all ourselves and just write all the stories, write all the music, and yeah. other people play it. And it would be like Blue Man Group. Sure, sure. Those are ideas that we're still coming to grips with and, uh, and trying to figure out. We don't have any really set in stone. There's a lot of, you know... Uh, got time. Write another 30 yeah, years and yeah, you exactly. figure it out. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Awesome. That's a thing we've been talking for a really long time, so we'll uh, appreciate it. Absolutely. That's it. Thank you very much, Bob. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. This is iBone Snapper off of the brand new album Battle Maximus which came out in September 2013 uh, sung by Bone Snapper which is his human incarnation is a fellow named Bob Gorman uh, go get the album um, go see the live show uh, like I said they are going to be in Australia they're heading to uh, Japan for the first time um, and if you're not in, in either of those places then Go to guar.net. That's where you can find out all the information about tour dates, uh, where they'll be playing. Um, get anything you want. I know they had links to some of the uh, uh, appearances that Oduras did on um, Fox News. 
definitely entertaining. And I saw that I mean, they even have uh, wallpaper for your computer. You get that Guar wallpaper. You can do all kinds of exciting, exciting stuff there at Guar.net, um, including actually giving to the Corey Smoot Foundation, which is totally serious. Um, it's a great cause. And let me know what you think about History Replays Today on Facebook, Tumblr, History Replays Today, or at Twitter, um, at History Replays. And uh, if this is the first time you've ever listened to it, uh, History Replays Today is uh, posted the 1st and the 15th of every month. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you might listen to a podcast. And it's historians, authors, and you know, generally folks that have lived through or made Richmond history or history that's affected Richmond. Uh, so subscribe, you know, definitely tell your friends to subscribe, tell your mom to subscribe. Uh, when you, next time you go see Guar, you know, the guy who takes your tickets, tell, tell him, say, hey, subscribe to the History Replace Today podcast. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and let this thing play out, give you a nice taste so that uh, you can listen to this on your way to go picking up the album. Um, but make it a great day. <laughs>